Young women have been growing up with an indoctrination of what womanhood is and what it should be. They've been taught everything that is in direct opposition to the Word of God. Young women who want to be different from the world are rare, but they are real. On this Rare But Real podcast, Audrey Brogy will often be joined by her daughter, Grace Anna, and her daughters-in-law, Maureen, Kesset, and Marilyn, who desire to be discerning in a day when everything seems to go against God's design. Join them in the journey of becoming rare but real. It takes courage and conviction. Well, thank you so much for having me tonight. And when Grant and I, before we left home, we were praying this morning for tonight, and he said, I hope you just feel like you're going home, because I am coming home. And so this, just to be able to speak tonight, you all, is such a blessing to me, and As I look out on you tonight, I know, too, that I'm looking in the faces of a well-taught group of women. You know, when I heard that CBC wanted me to come speak, I honestly thought, well, what can I add? Because it is in these chairs and in this church that so much of my own vision for motherhood was built. But I know that you, like me, need the constant reminder of what God's Word says and teaches. We need the daily renewing of our minds in every area, including motherhood. Because, let's be honest, motherhood is hard. It's hard. And I'm not holding this study because I have all the answers to share with you regarding mothering. In fact... If this study is about me and my tips or methods, I wouldn't even have the confidence to stand up here and say anything at all. I know I'm making mistakes as a mom, and I know how often I fail. That is exactly why I decided to call this study a vision for motherhood, because the truths I want to share with you this weekend are the truths I am hanging on to for dear life, I need a vision for motherhood from God's word. Now, I want you to think for just a moment about your mom. Each one of us has been profoundly shaped by a mother. How has she influenced you? I was recently talking with a friend, and she expressed that she was incredibly grateful that her mom modeled so well for her how to be a loving wife and mother, but she also said that her mom never really talked about why she did things the way she did them. Even though her mom is a Christian, she never explained her theological reasons for helping her husband and eventually quitting her full-time job to stay home and raise her children while they were young. Now a mom herself, my friend is studying what God's word says about marriage and mothering for the first time. And she's so grateful for what was modeled to her, but would have loved to have grasped a biblical vision for motherhood even sooner. Another friend of mine has a different perspective. Her mom stayed home with her and her siblings and even homeschooled them, but was dreadfully unhappy with her life. And this profoundly affected my friend. Her mom did a lot of things that appeared noble outwardly, but there was not much joy present in her mothering. It didn't seem that she had any theological vision for why she did what she did. 
my friend has since left the faith and rejected any notion of biblical mothering. When you think about the mom who shaped you, there are probably a lot of things running through your mind. Maybe your mom was a believer and she valued motherhood. Maybe she had a strong grasp of why she did what she did and was able to communicate that to you. Or maybe you are like my friend that I just described, and there is great pain when you think of your mom. Perhaps you never knew your mom, or you lived with one or more stepmoms who had varying degrees of influence in your life, or your mom was not a believer. Of course, no mother is perfect, and we can all think of ways we'd like to be different from or even learn from our own mom. However, there is no denying how profoundly important the topic of motherhood is, as a mother deeply shapes her children from the earliest ages. A mother's perspective of marriage and mothering profoundly impacts her children, especially a daughter if she has one. Now, the culture is saying we don't need to talk about the value of motherhood. In many cases, the lines between men and women are completely blurred, and there isn't much encouragement out there at all regarding making your husband and children a priority. Our culture is even attacking the concept of motherhood itself, preferring to call mothers birthers as though the essence of motherhood is simply found in the process of giving birth. Likewise, the church is talking about motherhood less and less, which minimizes the value of motherhood and withholds from women what God's word teaches about this foundational topic. You know, a few years ago, I was at a women's retreat, and I heard one prominent evangelical speaker say that motherhood is not a calling. Though hard to hear, that statement should not come as a surprise. Francis Schaeffer famously said, tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying in seven years. Much of what passes as sound theological teaching on motherhood is actually just a recycled version of wider cultural norms. As you think about your own mother, I'm sure you wouldn't deny how profoundly her impact has been on your life. We don't need to talk about motherhood less. We need to talk about it more. Now more than ever, we need a vision for motherhood. Proverbs 29:18 says, "Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he." Now this, of course, is a general principle for societies. People need hope and direction to thrive. And you could for sure make that generic statement from this verse, and it is how it is often explained when it's quoted. But the actual translation of the word vision is more specific. It refers to divine revelation, instruction from the word of God. Now, in the time period when it was written, a prophet would receive divine revelation from God to share with God's people. God no longer speaks through prophets because we have the written word of God. This vision is his divine revelation, his living word. And we need a vision of God's word for all of life, including motherhood. 
And one of the reasons the Lord put it on my heart to do this study was because so many women do not have a biblical vision of the glorious calling of motherhood. And they are trying to mother without this vision, and they are floundering. That word perish in 2918, it's not talking about physically dying, but about living one's life out of control. It's kind of like when you go to take a shower and you get all the kids settled and you come back in the kitchen and absolute chaos has ensued in that little time that you were trying to take a shower. But so many women are trying to mother without this book. They've gained snippets of wisdom from the word on what being a mother is all about, but they don't have a biblical vision. Tidbits and encouraging sayings regarding motherhood do not have sustaining power. Those things will not lift you on the hard days of mothering. It will not sustain you when you are worn out, flat exhausted, and just want to run off in a room and cry. And if you're like my mom, eat ice cream. (laughs) Now, it won't comfort you in seasons of brokenness when your children hurt you or sin creeps in and discourages you. When I brought my oldest child, Audrey Kate, home from the hospital, I remember laying her tiny body on the bed and crying and saying to my husband, Grant, I can't believe they just let me take her home with me. How am I supposed to be the one to keep her alive? I wish, I wish there was a handbook for this. I needed a master checklist. This task was quite frankly too big. All the things I thought I knew suddenly seemed to fly out the window. And I remember Grant saying something like, Graysanna, God has called you to this. He will give you everything you need as you trust him. And that truly is the best advice. Yes, there are parenting handbooks out there, but there is no handbook that will completely meet the unique needs of you as a mother and the unique needs of your child. And I certainly can't give you that either. When it comes to biblical mothering, you need more than sample nap schedules and diaper changing techniques. You need a vision for motherhood. And this book, God's Word, presents a vision so much greater than I could ever give you or you could ever think up on your own. It's bigger than motherhood and encompasses everything you need to know about being a mother because this vision will lead you to the God who called you to be a mother. He is always enough, and he calls us to trust him with every single aspect of our lives. And that is my prayer and desire for this study. Yes, I'm going to share some practical applications that I'm making from the Word with my kids, and I hope and pray that those things will help you. But they aren't going to be the focus because I want more than anything for my life and for your life to be built on God's Word. I know some of you here don't even have children yet, and that encourages me so much that you are here I am incredibly blessed that as a young woman, I was taught many of the truths from God's word that I'm going to share with you in this study. And let me tell you, that is such a blessing because just like that moment when I brought RJ Kate home from the hospital, I had to lean on those truths that I had already learned, though most certainly there's a lot of on-the-job training that takes place. 
But I hope that this study will encourage you in whatever season you are in. I think a lot of us are in the thick of it. Some of you are not, but I am confident that his word is going to encourage us, and I know that we're going to encourage one another. So here's a little bit of how the sessions for tonight are go- tonight and tomorrow are going to go. Tonight we're going to look at a biblical vision for marriage. Tomorrow morning we will cover a biblical vision for children and then a biblical vision for discipleship. And I don't have time over the weekend to cover the entire Bible study that I taught to the women of my church, but... The study is being put into the book, which I think is in your handout. So if you want the entirety of the study, you can get it later. Now, you might be thinking, why are we starting with marriage? Shouldn't we just jump right into the practical mothering stuff? But a vision for motherhood is built on a vision for marriage. Trying to mother without a biblical understanding of marriage is like constructing a house without the proper foundation. There is nothing for the structure to properly rest upon. We must examine the layers undergirding biblical motherhood before we can address motherhood itself. Why is your vision for motherhood tied up in your vision for marriage? Because in order to be a godly mother, you must first be a godly wife. And if you desire to be a godly wife, well, that is impossible without knowing Christ as your Savior. So it's in this order and in no other that a biblical vision for motherhood is built. Now, while it is very commendable to pour your energy into loving your children, it is also wrong to do so if it happens at the expense of your, your husband. It's also futile to try loving and respecting your husband the way scripture calls you to without being fully devoted to the Lord. Having a vision for motherhood means being willing to place motherhood in its rightful place in your life. Your relationship with the Lord must always come first then your relationship with your husband, and then your children. Your family doesn't begin when you have a child. You and your husband are family, even if God never gives you the blessing of children. A family begins at the altar when you make your vows to the man God has called you to love. God then designed motherhood to be lived out underneath the headship of a man. Now, as I speak these words, I'm fully aware that many of you who are here or listening are single moms. Perhaps your husband left you or you have had a baby and were never married. Whatever the reason, it is still vitally important that you understand what God intended for marriage so that you can teach your children a biblical foundation. Even though your circumstances are not ideal, as God designed motherhood to be lived out in the context and protection of marriage. God is sovereign, and he is with you every step of the way. And parenthetically, just as a reminder, I feel like our culture is so pushing for, you know, couples to just live together and not be married. And the scripture reminds us that marriage is is not just a covenant, it's not just... um, a commitment, but it is for your protection as well. It is so that, so that a man makes vows to you as a woman, and you make those to him to bring children up. So if we're going to understand a biblical vision for motherhood, we must begin with the right foundation. And let's do that by starting at the very beginning. So if you have your Bible with you or your copy of scriptures, go to Genesis 1, 
And we're going to start with verses 27 and 28. So Genesis 1, 27 through 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, when you read the Genesis account, you see God creating light in the darkness, separating the waters into land and sea, and then filling up his creation with the moon and stars and the animals and plants. But when he creates man and woman, he does something unique. He creates them in his own image, a replica, a way to show the world what he is like. And I also want you to note that from this Genesis passage is that both man and woman are uniquely created in his image. The woman doesn't have more of God's image than the man, nor does the man have more of God's image than the woman. They are both equally created in the image of God. If you're taking notes tonight, my first point is this. Man and woman were equally created in God's image to bring him glory. Man and woman were equally created in God's image to bring him glory. If you look back again at verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now let's look, zoom in further and look at God's original roles for the man and woman. First, the command to both of them in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. My second point is this, man and woman were both commanded to multiply and subdue the earth. Man and woman were both commanded to multiply and subdue the earth. Together, they are to subdue the earth. Sometimes this is translated have dominion. They are called to rule as kings and queens over the creation. Adam and Eve are called to reflect the character of God by reigning in justice and kindness, mirroring God's holiness. I loved the Chronicles of Narnia series as a kid, and I have loved revisiting them now with my kids. And at the end of The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, the children become kings and queens who rule over Narnia. Aslan tells them, once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen. Bear it well, sons of Adam. Bear it well, daughters of Eve. And C.S. Lewis is leaning on this picture of the children bearing the image of Aslan's goodness to the people. And it's just a small picture of this blessing that God gives Adam and Eve to rule and reign over his creation. In Genesis 2, we get a closer look at the different responsibilities God created for man and woman. So Genesis 1 gives us the overview, and then Genesis 2, we look closer. So I want you to turn over to Genesis 2 and start by looking at verse 18. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So we see God bringing the animals before Adam. And I hope this is a familiar passage for you. If it's not, God does this to expose Adam's need. These animals are exotic. They are beautiful and unique, but they are not made in the image of God. They are not able to be a soulmate for Adam, and they are unable to help him in this great calling God has called him to of taking dominion of the earth and subduing it. Now, this is the first time in God's creation of the world that he states that something is not good. The world is missing something. The world is missing someone. I mean, can you imagine a world with just men and animals? Boy moms, you know what I'm talking about. Now look at verse 21 of chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God makes the woman the perfect helper and companion to the man. And we see their differences in the very beginning, even in how God creates them He forms man from dust and breathes him into life. However, he creates Eve from Adam's side. And I I want you to notice this point that Eve was brought forth from Adam's body rather than being created independently. Why? Why does he do that? Why did God create her from Adam's rib? He created Adam out of dust, so wouldn't it make sense then for him to create independently Eve, maybe from flower petals or butterfly wings or stardust? I think my girls would love something like that. But no, God doesn't do that. Instead, he opens up Adam, takes a rib from his side, and forms the woman out of solid bone. God could have chosen any material he wanted to in creating Eve. He didn't even have to use material. As the entire seen and unseen world are at his disposal, God formed Adam out of dirt, and yet he chose a bone to construct Eve. She's not made out of fragile and delicate material, but something sturdy and strong. She is also not made independently, but created as part of Adam. Why does God do it this way? Because in her creation, God is saying something. God never does anything just because. He never does anything haphazardly. He is revealing the man and woman's dependence upon one another. And he is declaring the woman's role in the marriage relationship. She is Adam's helper fit for him. A partner suitable and correspondent to him. One of my favorite quotes explaining this passage is by Matthew Henry. He says, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, 
but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Point three, man and woman are dependent upon one another. And the woman is created as her husband's helper. Man and woman are dependent upon one another, and the woman is created as her husband's helper. God created them differently. He created them to complement one another, and he created them to be one flesh. This is a beautiful picture of marriage. And if we're ever going to understand motherhood and all God intended it to be, we must understand marriage. Because again, like I said, a family doesn't begin when children are born. A family begins here when a man and woman become one flesh in the covenant of marriage. So we see in Genesis 1 and 2 a grand vision of God's beautiful marriage design. First, God creates a brand new, perfect, and empty world that needs cultivating and filling. Next, God makes a man and woman team perfectly suited to embark on this task. They complement one another, and in obedience to their calling, they would glorify the Lord. But as we all know, things did not stay that way. The third chapter of Genesis is where things shift. And this chapter brings us to what is often called the fall, because Adam and Eve fell seemingly, though consciously, into sin. And subsequently, every human being has been born with a sin nature. So turn over now to Genesis 3, and I want to start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Several verses earlier, in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, God commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Keeping this in mind, we notice who the serpent chose to approach and tempt. Not Adam, but Eve. Remember, Adam was Eve's leader. The serpent, because he is crafty, chose not to approach or tempt Adam, but Eve subverting the marriage institution. Adam and Eve were to be a team, one flesh. But when Eve is tempted, we don't see her ask or consult Adam about this at all. She makes the decision to eat the fruit on her own. And Adam is silent, abdicating his leadership, not saying anything at all. 
And even though Adam was not deceived, he was still to be held responsible for what had taken place. And we see that when God confronts Adam, not Eve, because he was her covenant head. Sadly, Adam and Eve point the finger at one another, ultimately accusing God. And then God pronounces his weighty judgments on the serpent, on Adam and on Eve. And I want you to feel the weight of this. I want to look at the curse now in Genesis 3, 16. Because listen, you have to understand this. Because this brings clarity to how the fall has affected us as women, as wives, and as mothers. And this is something that the world doesn't understand at all. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There were serious consequences for Eve in the fall. In pain, you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Point four, the woman is cursed in the specific roles God has given her as Wife and mother, the woman is cursed in the specific roles God has given her as wife and mother. Now let's look first at how the fall affects Eve as a wife. The text says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Ouch. This word desire is the same word that is used in Genesis 4-7, meaning a desire for control. In Genesis 4-7, the Lord says to Cain, sin is lying at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is an expression of a desire to dominate. Now, the curse on the woman is that She will desire to rule over her husband and control him, but he will rule over her. Now tell me you haven't ever experienced that. Now I do want to point out, and this is very important, submission is not part of the curse. We see that God had already created Eve, right, out of Adam's side. He had created her as Adam's, Adam to be her head and her to be his helper, But now there's going to be a struggle in this relationship. Now she is going to desire to control her husband and rule over him instead of there being perfect harmony in this relationship. Do you see how important this is when it comes to motherhood? If you don't understand that part of this broken and fallen world is your own sin nature that wants to buck against your husband's leadership, how will you ever handle your emotions when you are postpartum and your husband is doing everything wrong and you just feel so upset? Our sin nature causes us to rebel against God's original and perfect design. In your sinful state, you will desire to rebel against your husband's leadership in your marriage. Grant always says he could be General Patton. (laughs) He could be the perfect leader. But if a wife isn't willing to follow and Christ hasn't 
changed her heart, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So we saw in Genesis 2 that Eve was created to be Adam's helper. The first two humans were made to be dependent upon one another, and yet Adam was not created out of Eve's bone, but the other way around. While creating woman, God was picturing the harmony that he desires for the husband and wife relationship. Paul affirms this when he writes in 1 Corinthians 11.8. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Also, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Paul also reiterates the created order when explaining to Pastor Timothy how local church leadership should function. And this is 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. He says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, Then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In today's day and age, these are not popular principles. (laughs) And the reason they're not popular principles is the very reason why it's saying that they're not popular principles. Because now we know the reason why women rebel against God's original design in the marriage relationship. The fall and the ramifications of the curse have distorted us at the very core of our being as women. So the very reason that women don't like them is because of the very truth that it's saying. We are now born sinners as our husbands. And what was once easy is now a battle. So... A wife is going to struggle in her submission in her marriage. But the curse didn't stop there. So not only will she struggle in that relationship, but conceiving, giving birth, and raising children will all be accompanied by pain and sorrow. And I don't have to explain this to you. Every woman in this room knows this. Infertility, miscarriage, birth, actual you know, process of giving birth and all that accompanies that, postpartum emotions, toddler temper, tenter, tan, temper tantrums, <laughs> teenage rebellion, physical exhaustion, sleepless nights, and the list goes on. And you could make your own, your own list. Maybe you're sitting here right now feeling that. You know, when I was pregnant with Audrey Kate, I was eight days overdue, and I was in inconsistent labor for four days. And my body was stuck in this in-between state of no sleep and debilitating contractions that didn't seem to do anything. And I remember thinking, this is it. I get it now. This is the curse. This is terrible. I'm going to die. It's awful. But I also knew why, right? And this understanding of the fall and how it affects us as women is crucial. If we truly want to grasp the big picture of motherhood we have to come back to the beginning and make sure that we have a solid foundation. The fall affected us at the very core as women and as mothers, but there is hope. This isn't just, you know, so, it's so hard to read. It's so, it's sad, right? You look out at our world, it's sad. It's so hard, but there is hope 
for us as Christian wives and mothers. Yes, the fall marred God's perfect design, but praise be to God, he didn't leave us there. Even for Eve, God forgave her. I mean, he was, a, he was extending his grace to Adam and Eve, even in that moment that he allowed them to live. He clothed her, and even in the curse, he promised that one day he would bring a future redeemer. Even in God's judgment, he includes a promise of salvation. And that's my fifth point, that Christian women are born again. We have a new nature. This is where we have, we have to start. And maybe you're in this room and you, you, you aren't born again. You don't have a new nature. Because we're Christian women, we have hope. We don't have to be downtrodden or be controlled by what happened in the fall. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow and its implications for us in motherhood. Yes, we should face the sin problem honestly and with our eyes wide open. We should recognize how it marred our world in our very nature. We should also understand how God's good design has been distorted when men or women who profess to know Christ hold a form of godliness, yet warp headship and submission in marriage by adding rules to the beauty and simplicity of God's design. The Old Testament prophesied, the Old Testament prophets prophesied about this new desire and new heart that God would give his people through the gospel. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will also give them a new heart. Do you have a new heart? A new heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and they will return to me wholeheartedly. Also, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and cause you, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. How beautiful and freeing is this that as Christian women, we have been given a new heart and a new desire to walk with the Lord and obey his design. Just as in the beginning, God spoke the world into existence out of nothing. So he makes a new creation in your heart. It becomes new. That's why it's called the new birth. It is a new spiritual beginning. You can always have a new beginning in Christ. And when I look at you here tonight, you want to know what God's word says about motherhood? Tonight is a testimony to the power of the gospel. My last point for tonight is point six. A Christian woman desires to submit to God's word and embrace motherhood. A Christian woman desires to submit to God's word and embrace motherhood. This new desire that God gives us as a result of the gospel changes everything. As Christian women, we shouldn't fight against God's word, but desire to accept it for what it really is, the word of God. That's why a feminist Christian is an oxymoron. Because you can't say, I belong to Christ, and yet accept the world's idea of you. 
if you are a Christian, your heart is to accept God's word and his design for you. You don't read the Bible over it, judging it. You're under it. You want to know what it says. And that's why when you're reading the New Testament and you get to his commands of submission and loving children, there's just this presupposed understanding that the Christian woman is going to love God's commands and not reject them. Of course, sometimes they're hard. Of course, sometimes we don't want to know what they mean. And we're all on a spiritual journey of sanctification and conforming our lives to the word of God. And this is why, of course, it's so important to be under sound preaching of the truth of Scripture in the local church and to read it daily. Everything we are as wives and mothers stems from our relationship with the Lord and our acceptance of his word in our lives. And we should always be measuring what the world is telling us against this book. And we always have to keep that in mind, that the things that we're hearing from the world are not submitted to this book. And so we have to to weigh those things. You know, for me, Mary, the mother of Jesus, has always been the pinnacle of what it looks like to embrace motherhood because of her words. Let it be done to me according to your word. She saw herself as a servant. She saw herself as living out God's plan for her life. How many times have you been going through such a difficult point in your life and you just had to say, Lord, I'm yours. Be it done to me. Not that fight, right? Be it done to me according to your word. Mary wasn't the perfect mom. She didn't have a list of qualifications to be mother of Savior of the world. Remember, she was a young woman. She was inexperienced, most likely fearful. But she did have this one thing. She loved the Lord and desired to serve him. And that's what every Christian woman wants. Even if they struggle at times, that's what they really want. Because of that, she embraced God's plan for her life and welcomed motherhood. And this desire to welcome God's plan should be at the heart of every Christian and especially every Christian mother. Despite the callings that the world disparages, she will hold God's plan high as God has given her a heart that desires to embrace a biblical vision for motherhood. And when she does... She will bring God glory and discover that when she keeps God's law, happy is she. She's happy. There's joy even when things are difficult. Now, one of the things I did with the women in my church when I taught this study is before I pray, which I'm going to do in a minute, I gave them a minute just to write down the answer to this question. What is one thing that the Holy Spirit impressed on your heart from his word tonight that you are going to strive to apply in your life. So what is one thing that the Holy Spirit impressed on your heart from his word that you are going to strive to apply? Because so often as busy moms and women, we are quick to move on to the next thing. You're going to go home. There's going to be responsibilities. There's going to be dishes in the sink. You might have to unload the dishwasher. You don't know what's going to be waiting for you when you get home. But right now you have this moment. So I want you to take just a moment before I pray and answer that question. 
Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that we are not women left without hope, left without direction, that you have given us a book that provides all the wisdom that we need, Lord, whether we are mothers who have actually given birth to children or whether we are spiritual mothers in the church. Lord, you have given us your word to give us hope. And I pray just for the women here tonight and what you've impressed on their heart from your word tonight, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give them the desire and ability to obey. You promised that you would, and that when we ask what is according to your will, that you hear us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage each woman, regardless of her season of life, regardless if it's a happy and joyous time in motherhood right now, or if it's a very difficult and challenging season. And I do pray, Lord, if there's a woman in this room who just, as I am speaking and just sharing how Christ transforms our hearts and gives us a new heart, if there is a woman in this room who does not have that new heart, that she would come to you in faith and put her trust in the gospel and what you did for her on the cross, paying for her sin, dying the death she deserved, and living the life that she cannot live. Lord, you live the life for us, the perfect life. Lord, we don't have to try to measure up. We can walk in humble dependence upon you. And I do pray just for tomorrow as we talk through children, raising children, and discipling our children, that you would just bless our times together, that all the women would be able to come back. You would keep their children healthy and childcare and all of those things to enable them to come back. Lord, we give you this evening and we thank you for tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed this episode of Rare But Real, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. And share this podcast with friends. Follow Audrey on Instagram and Facebook at Mothering From The Heart. And listen to all her messages on the Search the Scriptures app.